Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So I'm teaching today on insecurities, which I think is, is neat because I've got a lot of experience with insecurities. I've got just a wealth of experience with insecurities I can share with you guys. But greater than my insecurities, greater than your insecurities, are the promises of our living God. Amen? Amen. And do you guys believe, like honestly, do you believe that God's word can overcome our insecurities? I, I agree. I agree 100% today. I agree a little bit less on Monday, a little bit less on Tuesday. But by the time I get back to Sunday, I agree 100% again. The reason for that is because I have to live with myself. Does anyone here have to live with themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I have to live with myself tomorrow. We've got a bit of an emergency happening at work, and I have to live with myself tomorrow knowing that probably at some point tomorrow, I'm going to lash out in the flesh. I'm going to do something dumb and insecure. And it's going to shake my faith just a little bit. It's going to chip at my faith just a little bit more. And it's going to make me ask myself, are God's promises really big enough to cover my insecurities? Because I, like I said, I got a lot of them. Right? I got a lot of them. And so my, my hope is that this message will not only strengthen you for today, but it will strengthen you for tomorrow. Not because my words and my ideas and my PowerPoint slides are awesome, <laughs> but, but because God's word is awesome. And it's not just another good book. It's not. I, I, during the prayer, I was thinking, and during the worship this morning, I was thinking about where Jesus was teaching, and he said, my body is the bread, and you must eat of me. And everyone's like, whoa, this just got really weird. What on earth are you talking about? And everyone was like, I, I'm not down with this. I'm leaving. I'm out. I'm out, right? And Jesus turns to his disciples, and he said, are you guys going too? Are you guys going to walk out too because you don't understand what I'm saying? And Peter tells him, you alone have the words of life. Where else can we go? Where else can we go? And this, this journey that we're on, this Christian thing doesn't always make sense. I don't get why I can't just be like perfected overnight and just be like, hey, no more flesh, no more insecurities, no more stubborn habits, no more nonsense. I am 100% transformed by God. That would be great. And that's the way that I would choose to do it. But God in his wisdom that is so much bigger than mine, chooses to do it through the means of our daily struggle, through the means of a daily process where we will ask ourselves, am I going to keep turning to my own strength for this, my own insecurities, or am I going to keep turning to God? Amen? Amen. So I came up with a quick definition of insecurity, just kind of looking through a couple of dictionaries. This is kind of harvested from, through a lot of different places. But the idea, when I say insecurity, because I know that that's a really, really big big zone that it can cover. What I'm talking about is a feeling or a state of uncertainty, anxiety, worry, unease that results from doubt or a lack of confidence. Nobody else, nobody here has this, right? As I was thinking, that's a mouthful. That's a huge mouthful. It sounds like it could be in a dictionary. But as I was praying about this this morning, God, God kind of shorthanded it for me. And uh, the, the, what I really, really felt him speaking to me is that insecurities are the defense mechanism of the flesh. Insecurities are when our flesh, when our, 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 us, our, our imperfect, sinful selves feels threatened. Insecurity is what we do. 
It's the way that it manifests. And you don't even have to teach it to someone. I can, I can tell you I've been around really, really small children. I've been around my own children. And if you have multiple children, you can do this. Or if you have like a Sunday school class or if you're a teacher or you interact with, with children a lot, you could do this. Compliment one of them. Compliment one of them. Tell them, wow, you are so good at art. And the other ones almost certainly will say, I'm good at art too, right? Or if you have kids like mine sometimes, they'll say, yeah, she may be good at art, but she's really bad at this. And it's like, why would you do that? Why would we do that? And, and we as adults are not immune to it. We do this same, same thing. If you've ever been in like a, a group meeting where there's, they're talking about a project that you worked on, that you were part of, and maybe the, the project lead or somebody else is getting credit for what you did right, in that project, and they're like, wow, so-and-so, you sure did a great job, and we have to like, oh, that was me, I did that, I did that, that was, that was my work, yeah, that, you still think it's great, right? We're insecure, we're insecure, and that comes up in so many ways, many of them are benign, but many of them are fatal, many of them are fatal, because well, it's not just the insecurities that come up when we talk to each other, but it's insecurities that come up when we, when we talk to ourselves and when we talk to God. Many, many times I've heard people, mostly my own voice, saying something similar to this. Oh, okay, I'll pray for it, but what, what can I do? What can I do to help? Or I guess all we can do is pray, right? <laughs> right? You guys know this is true, right? And I'm, I'm trying to be humble with you guys because this message won't do anything for anyone without humility. It won't do anything for anyone without vulnerability. Because we'll just look at ourselves and we'll pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, we sure are sinners, but God's great. Let's go eat lunch, right? <laughs> right? Isn't that what we tend to do? But unless we have vulnerabilities, unless we can deal with the reality of our anxious doubts, do you guys ever doubt God? I do sometimes. I don't doubt him for maybe my salvation. I'm pretty secure in that. But sometimes I doubt that he cares about helping me find my keys, right? Right? Or cares about the little things in life. And those are those insecurities that crop up in our lives. I want to tell you that insecurities aren't always bad. There are some things that we should not be secure in. And oddly enough, those are the things that the world tries to champion in us, right? If you just believe in yourself, you can do anything, right? And usually there's like a cat doing something really cute, right? Just believe in yourself, right? You know, those motivational posters, right? Or somebody counting, uh, climbing like a mountain. You can do anything if you believe in yourself. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. You can do a lot of things. You can also mess up a lot of things if you believe in yourself. Instead, God's living word, we're going to get into this later, says, uh, we, we think about uh, in John, where it talks about if you abide in me, right? But it says if you don't abide in me, you can do nothing, right? And it talks about in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the context there isn't because I sure am great. It's because I've learned, and we're going to get into this later, I've learned to be, to be confident in God no matter what my circumstances are. You guys know what the difference between happiness and joy is? A brother of mine at work uh, summed, summed this up really, really beautifully. I don't know where he got it from. But he says, happening, happiness is based on what's happening. And the opposite of happiness is sadness. Joy is not based on what's happening. Joy is based on confidence, on faith. And the opposite of joy is despair. The opposite of joy is despair. And so if we have confidence in ourselves, and we have confidence in how we're doing today, our happiness and our confidence will be a very temporal, very temporary thing. 
But if we have confidence in the God who it says is the same yesterday, today, and forever, for the God who spoke creation into existence and still cares to speak to you and me, for the God who offered himself in a shameful death on the cross for my sins, and that even after that, continues to intercede for me at the right hand of the Father. That is something that is much more worthy of our confidence than ourselves. I look at Philippians 3, and it talks about putting no confidence in human effort. And Paul's writing here to the Philippian church, which had a whole lot of reason for confidence. The Philippian church was a Roman colony, and so all the people who were of Philippi were Roman citizens, which was a huge, huge deal. You may not think that your American citizenship is a big deal, but in Rome, citizenship was a massive deal. If you were a citizen, that meant you had certain protections. For instance, that you couldn't be taken off the street and beaten and scourged without a trial. Things like that, right? It, means, it meant that you had certain rights. And so the Philippian church rightfully was confident in their own citizenship and the protections that they had from Rome and the protections that they had in their identity as Roman citizens. And so Paul is telling them, and just got finished telling them in the introduction to the letter, not to, to, to put confidence in your citizenship in Rome, but to put confidence in your citizenship in heaven, as citizens of heaven. And then he sums that up by saying, we put no confidence in human effort. And if you are insecure in your own human effort, if your insecurity drives you toward faith in God, that is a good insecurity. That is a good insecurity. I think about when Paul says that um, when he was praying about the thorn to be removed and God said, my power is perfected in weakness, right? My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's our weaknesses that give God an opportunity to show us how, how we shouldn't put confidence in ourselves and how he is worthy of all confidence. And so I pray that you would let your insecurities drive you toward faith and not toward fear. But instead, when we operate outside of faith, our insecurities have nowhere else to drive us except to fear. I'm not loved enough. I'm not appreciated enough. These people don't know how good at this I am, right? Right? Or what if they know this? Or what if they hear this? Or, you know, and then we end up feeling like we have to defend ourselves and be proactive. And that's where all kinds of messes come from, right? The good news is that it's really, really easy to help other people out by pointing out their insecurities, right? Is anyone, you don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> I am very, very, very good at finding other people's insecurities. I am super great at it. And I need to keep my mouth shut most of the time. <laughs> and that could be an insecurity, right? So if you feel like your, your spiritual calling, your, your spiritual gift is being a fruit inspection, and if a fruit inspector, it's a trap. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't use these insecurities to call other people out unless you're under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and you're doing it in truth and in love and in a way that honors them and honors God, right? Because there are some times when we do have to confront people, right? But it should never be out of insecurities. It should be out of love that we confront people, right? And in the truth of Scripture. So this message, the point of this message is not to convince you and to equip you to call out other people's insecurities. The point of this message is that all of us can participate in some much-needed reflection. Some much-needed reflection. To look in the mirror, like James says, or to, to look through God's eyes like, like Samuel was told to. It's funny, if you look at the, the chronicle of the, of the history of Israel and how King Saul came to power, does anyone here, feel free to shout it out, don't be insecure. Does anyone here know what Saul's number one qualification was as king? He was the tallest guy. 
I'm not kidding you. He was the tallest guy. Like, if you read the scripture, they're like, hmm, we need a king. And Samuel's like, you don't need a king. You've got God. And they're like, all the other nations have kings. We want a king. And we're going to choose that guy because he's really tall. Because <laughs> he looks like he's a really, really powerful warrior, right? And so they chose Saul as their king. You guys know the history of it. It was a ginormous, unmitigated, disastrous mess, right? And so Samuel tells God, or sorry, God tells Samuel, hey, I have anointed this guy. He's a son of Jesse, um, who, if you don't know, was a son of Obed, who was a son of, uh, uh, he was a grandson of Obed with Ruth and all that, right? And uh, so he says, I've, I've anointed this guy to go and be king, and I want you to go and, and find him and to anoint him. And so he goes to Jesse, and Jesse's got all of his favorite sons, except for the one guy, right, who was tending the sheep, the little sheep, uh, sheep herder, right? He's got all of them. And what does Saul do? What does Samuel do? Samuel goes immediately to the tallest guy and says, oh, look at this guy. He is a handsome, tall dude. He should be king, right? And God responds to him. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height. Because that didn't work last time. <laughs> don't judge by his appearance or height. For I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the things the way that people see them, the way you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so that's exactly why we're not well equipped for, for judging insecurities in other people. It's because we can't see their heart. We don't know their motive. All the time, I've got one kid who is a wonderful, wonderful human being who is just absolutely called to be the cop in the family. <laughs> Any of you guys have like a, a family cop, right? Who is the arbiter of justice in your family. And man, does he hate it when somebody does something wrong. And he will be the first one to bring it to your attention, right? And he'll also, he helps you out. He doesn't just tell you what they did. He'll tell you exactly why they did it, right? Come on, you guys have kids. You guys know that this happens in your families too, right? And so he'll tell you, so-and-so did this because they hate me, <laughs> right? So, or if you guys have kids that are in school, right? It, did you know that teachers all hate their kids, right? Because your kids, if they get a bad grade in school, why is it? It's because their teachers hate them, right? And so we're really, really good at falsely judging the motives of other people's hearts. And God tells us, you don't know other people's motivations. You don't know their heart. And that's why it's so important that in any kind of confrontation, that God is first and foremost in that process. That it's not we who judge other people, but it's God's word and God who judges them, right? And even only that is after a rejection of grace. That's a whole nother message, but it's something that we need to keep first and foremost as we consider insecurities and addressing them, that we have to, have to, have to focus on the plank in our own eye, not the speck in our brother's eye. It's foundational. It's super important. And like I said, that has to be a reflective process. I think about what the book of James says about people's tendency to look in the mirror to see the despicable state of their own soul and their own, their own flesh and then immediately forget that and walk away. James puts it this way. He says, for if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You look at yourself, walk away and forget what you look like. And I feel like Sunday mornings, and again, I'm speaking for myself here. I feel like Sunday mornings for me can be that process. That I have this wonderful vulnerable encounter with the living God on Sunday morning and then I forget everything he told me on Monday morning, right? And so that's what we want to avoid. That's what we want to overcome. And that requires vulnerability. That requires not putting our trust in our own ability to change ourselves, not telling God, oh yeah, that is a problem. I'll make sure I change that. But coming vulnerable before the word of God and saying, I can't. 
I can't do it in my own strength. I need your grace. I need your living word. I need your, your Holy Spirit to come and walk beside me and to help me to live a life worthy of the call of Christ. And just a reminder, like, because it's, it it's permeates everything and because it's really the secret sauce that makes this work, is I feel like we need to be reminded about God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. I know that that's a big word that maybe you hear a lot. And all it means is God is in charge of everything. There is literally nothing that surprises him. There's nothing that makes him have to change his plans. There's nothing that changes him. He doesn't have to to rethink things or change his mind. That God is absolutely sovereign and in control of all things, even, even the scary things, even the uncomfortable things, even the things that hurt. That God uses it for our good. And we know that because Romans 8.28 says that we know that God causes everything, all things, to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. And I think that we can hear that over and over and over and over again, but it's, it's so hard to actually live that out. It's so hard to live that out. It's so hard to keep God's sovereignty first and foremost in your mind. To, to look when bad things happen and to say, wow, that stinks. I wonder what God's going to do to transform that into good. That's the attitude we should have, right? Like we should look at when life gives us manure and say, what kind of flower is God growing out of this? But we don't. We look at manure and we say, why do I always get manure? I hate manure. Why can't I get flowers every once in a while? Without knowing that they're, they're part of the same system that God uses for our good. And I love what what the author of Hebrews says. He says, so don't throw away this confident trust again in a chapter that's very much about the sovereignty and supremacy of God, right? And going into a testimony of of faith, he says, I don't want you to throw away the confident trust that we have in the Lord. I don't want you to throw away your dependence on God's sovereignty because of the great reward it brings you. And if you look at that in the English, it it, it can be hard to understand that that's not a reward that's coming. It's a reward that's here. The, the word brings there is actually the Greek. It's from the word echo. And it's a present, active, indicative. I know that's a mouthful, but present, what that means is happening right now. That those who put their trust in God are being rewarded, present tense, right now. Continually. Not, not someday in heaven, but right now. That, that, that putting your confidence in God brings its own reward. Active means that it's an active process that we engage in. And indicative in Greek means that it's a statement of fact. It's not some hyperbolic poetic thing. It's saying just like this podium is made of wood, those who put their trust in the living God enjoy the rewards that come from that. And there are huge, huge rewards that come from that. But it's an uncomfortable process. It's an uncomfortable process stepping away and and taking charge of your life and taking it away from yourself and giving it to God. It's an uncomfortable process not trusting in your own ability to shape things and to to make things happen. And you got to look out for yourself and you got to look out for number one, right? All of the messages that our culture permeates with with every single day and instead say, no, I'm not going to look out for myself. I'm going to let God be my defense. I'm going to let God be my, 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 my glory. I'm going to let God be my goodness. I'm going to let him be the one that I depend on day and day and day. I'm going to live my life according to the plan that he has for my life, not my own plan. So let us hold tightly, as it says in Hebrews, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God can be trusted to, to keep his promises? 
Every single one. Every single one. And so as I like to do when I teach, I like to have a practical element. I like to have a, this is how you take this message with you tomorrow kind of element. And so I'm going to walk through just a couple of, of the insecurities that I picked in my own life, questions that I have in my own faith, things that I ask myself. And I'm going to walk through just what God's word has to say about that. Because if we're going to depend on God's promises to over, overcome our security, we have to know what? God's promises, right? It's, it's a requirement. You have to know God's promises to depend on God's promises. And so if you're not, being, if you're not spending time in God's word, experiencing and, lo- and learning and memorizing his promises, then you're not equipped for this. You're not. And you're just going to fall right back to what you know and what you're used to, and that's depending on yourself. So let's walk through these. Number one, am I loved enough? I will say, because I can't have you guys all raise your hands because it'll be embarrassing, I ask this question. I ask this question. Less and less as time goes on, but I, I want to know, am I loved? And, and oftentimes it's easy for me to forget that God loves me in small ways. To, to kind of cheapen the fact that God gave his life for me and showed the absolute ultimate expression of love by asking him in the daily, day-to-day part of my life when things go wrong, how could you let this happen to me? I thought you loved me. Yes, sometimes even pastors ask that question. I, and maybe you've asked it yourself. You don't have to raise your hand. But again, in the privacy of your own reflection with the Holy Spirit right now, just being real with God. If you've ever asked yourself, God, do you really love me? There are promises after promises after promises in Scripture and testimonies of God's love in your life that you need to remember and recall. I think about the children of Israel when they entered the promised land. They were told to take stones out of the Jordan River. And they said, let this stone be a stone of remembrance that God keeps his promises. And so we need to, in whatever form that takes, whether it's a journal that you have or whether it's it's a, a file you have on your computer, whatever it is, you need to remember God's promises. When God comes through in miraculous, beautiful ways in the everyday context of your life, and you're like, God, that was really cool. Write it down. Do something with it so that you can remember. Because your brain is a goldfish stinking brain that will forget as soon as bad stuff happens that God is a God who keeps his promises. So keep these scriptures close to your heart. Keep those remembrances of actual, practical, real, everyday things that God does for you close to your heart so you can remember so that your, your flesh won't rob you of those. By, by way of your insecurities, by way of my insecurities. Um, I, lo- I love what it says in 1 John, that real love. And again, I'm using the New Living Translation. That might be a, te- uh, a translation that you guys don't use a whole lot. I like to use a number of translations. Um, my favorite literal one is probably going to be like the NASB, maybe the ESV. But I like paraphrase translations, good paraphrase translations, because there's definitely bad paraphrase translations. I like good paraphrase translations, because sometimes it helps you to visualize what God's saying in kind of a new way. And it kind of helps to bring out some of the nuances of what the Greek or the Hebrew is saying in those. So I love that it says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. There can't be a better expression of love, right? The the word of God says that greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friend, right? We know that it says that we were once children of darkness, that we were once enemies of God, but even despite that, God reconciled us not through filling out the right forms and making sure it was stamped in triplicate, but by way of his own body offered for us, his own blood shed for us on the cross, right? That is not a cheap thing by any means. 
And it's, it's kind of hard for us to visualize. I, I, think, I think about it all, almost in terms of money. Like, you think about the $3.5 trillion or billion dollar, what is it, is it trillion? I think it's trillion dollar. Uh, trillion dollar, you see, I mix them up because I, I don't, I can't understand trillions of dollars. I really can't. Like, you, you just, if you were to actually even visualize, even in $100 bills, it would fill stadiums. Like, it is just a ridiculous amount of money. And so in the same way, this expression of love, you have to understand, it is so much bigger than your brain could ever understand. And every time God gives me just the smallest picture of what that looks like, I feel like my heart just shuts down. Like, I just, like... There's no way love can be that big. There is just no stinking way that anybody could love anybody else that much. And that is the love that God has for you. And you need to live in that place. You need to not cheapen it by forgetting it or by letting your circumstances get bigger than God. And the way that that happens is you draw near to God. And the closer that you are to God, the smaller everything else looks and the bigger He looks. Does that make sense? And that's in the context of your daily lives, not just draw near to God on Sunday and then draw near to yourself <laughs> all the other days. It's not this ebb and flow, but it's this continual process of drawing near to the living God. And then, of course, the classic verse. Again, just as almost a testimony of how easy it is to forget the enormity of God's love, just how tripe this is in our memory, that for God so loved the, the world, He loved the world so much that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Right? And the verse that comes after it, which is just as important, that God didn't send his son to condemn the world, even though he had every right to. Every right to. Do you understand that God had every right? He would have been fully justified to send Jesus Christ to condemn the world of sin. Every single right. But instead, he forsook his own right and decided to fulfill his justice in a way that hurt him so much more, but that saved us. So don't forget the love that God has for you. And I love this as I was preparing my message, I was thinking about this, and the fact that God doesn't have to prove his love for us. He never had to prove his love. He did, but he never had to prove his love. God is never insecure in the love that he has for us. As a, as a parent, I try my absolute hardest to make sure that I am loving my kids to the best of my ability. But there are doubts in my mind where I'm like, wow, did I make the right call there? Did I say the right thing? Man, is this punishment justified? Am, am, I, doing, am I being a good dad? And God never has to worry about that. Do you understand that the way that he loves you is perfect? in a way that we could never even, we can't even contextualize. We can't even, we don't even have a frame of reference for how, how good God's love for us is. And so he doesn't have to prove his love. And so when we do dumb things like say, but I thought you loved me, God doesn't have to like get insecure and go, oh my gosh, he thinks I don't love him. I better go and save the day. But instead he can work out his perfect plan, which is not our plan, but better for us. Amen. God's not insecure about his love. Am I rich enough? This is a question I'm sure that we ask ourselves a lot as culture, right? Am I rich enough? Do I have enough, not just to be able to provide for all of my needs, to not go hungry, but also to provide for all of my wants? And I love what scripture says about this in Philippians. Again, to the Philippian church, uh, Paul writes, I know how to live on nothing or almost everything or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is a full stomach or an empty stomach, whether it was, is with plenty or little. 
And then this is probably the part of the verse that you're used to hearing quoted. I could do all things or I could do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Did you know that the context for that verse that we use to say I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength, the basis, the foundation for that is that I have become comfortable trusting in God when I have everything I need or when I have nothing at all. Those are both super, super hard circumstances to trust God in. When we have everything we need, our default behavior absolutely 100% of the time is trusting in our own resources to provide for our needs. God's super busy and he's got lots to do. I'll just take care of this one, right? And so we stop, we start trusting in ourselves and we stop bringing things to God's throne, right? Or we stop analyzing ourselves and testing ourselves and bringing ourselves humbly to, to, to God's throne of, to receive that grace and to receive that provision and to receive that mercy, right? And also when we have nothing at all, it can be hard to trust in God, right? But Paul says that the absolute secret of living a contented life that is, that is evidenced by faith in God is knowing how to be confident in God's provision and his promises and in his grace with nothing or with everything. And that from that place, when you have experienced God providing for you, when you have nothing at all, and when you have experienced depending on God's provision, when you even feel like you can provide for yourself, when you've experienced both of those extremes, you can know that nothing is impossible for our God. Nothing is impossible. Because it's not us who's doing it, but it's Him. It's not my own strength that I'm working in, but it's God's strength working through me. Right? It's, it's our faith working outward through fear and trembling. I love it. It's good stuff. And then in Ephesians, it says, All praise and glory, uh, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Do you guys know, do you guys remember that you have every spiritual blessing? This is past tense. This is God has blessed, past tense, us with every spiritual blessing in the, he in the heavenly realms. This is an inheritance that we have been given before, before it would even be given, right? That he didn't have to die to give us this inheritance, right? And this is an inheritance that we in no way or shape or form deserved. Remember, we were children of darkness adopted by God and given this inheritance of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so the next time your spouse is like, but I really want that new car, you can say, but you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You don't need a new car, right? <laughs> you can use that, but probably don't. <laughs> it's probably not a great idea. But we need to use it on ourselves for sure. We need to remind ourselves that our, our satisfaction does not come in worldly things. Our satisfaction comes in knowing that we already have an abundance of wealth in Christ and that we are rich enough. I love what Jesus says in Matthew. It says, he's asking, what is the price of a sparrow? One copper coin. But a single sparrow can follow the, not a single sparrow can follow the ground without your father knowing it. Without your father knowing it. And the, even the very, hair, the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid, he tells us. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. We need to remember that, that we have value in Christ. Not because of our own ability to be valuable and to, to put our best front forward and to say, God, you should love me because I have a great resume. <laughs> you know? But instead, knowing that God loves us because that's his very nature and that he puts value in us and that he takes care of us. Am I smart? Enough? Honestly, this is one that I struggle with a lot. Again, I'm going to raise my own hand on this one. Um, and oftentimes it can look like, like this in conversations. When somebody is talking about something that I know some stuff about, I feel like I have to chime in. 
like, oh, but did you know such and such? And then sometimes they won't hear me. And so I'll wait for like a lull in the conversation. Then I'll try to reintroduce it again, just to like, remember that I'm smart, right? Again, I'm <laughs> trying to be transparent with you guys. And it's humbling and it hurts, but it should. It should. We need to, as a church, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Amen? And so I need to remember that my, my smarts or my wisdom is not measured in the way that the world measures intelligence and wisdom, right? You're looking at a culture, the Greek culture absolutely prized philosophy. It was foundational. Like their rock stars and their superheroes and their sports stars, well, they had sports stars too. But one of the big, huge pillars of their, their culture was this absolute identity as being smart, as being smarter than the rest of the world, as being better educated than the rest of the world. And so... Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, uh, says, so where does that leave the philosophers and the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters, right? Where does it leave all these smart commentators? And he says, God has made the wisdom of the world look foolish. I love other translations. The original language kind of puts it in this, that he's put it to shame. He is, he, God's wisdom is so much smarter than what we say is smart that it's shameful when you look at it in that light. And honestly, that's how knowledge is. Like we look at the, the knowledge that they prized that they said, we are so smart, look what we can do. That we would look back with our modern technology and go, y'all are children. <laughs> like, come on. You haven't discovered nuclear physics yet? Come on. You still think that like you haven't even discovered relativity or you haven't discovered Newtonian physics? You guys don't even know the first thing about anything, right? In the same way that we judge previous generations' technology, God's wisdom and God's knowledge and God's understanding and the truth of his scripture is so far ahead of our understanding and what we glorify as, as intelligent in our culture. So far ahead. And so it says, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. I love how it says elsewhere that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but that we who are being saved by it, it's the power of God and salvation. We need to remember that we, our intelligence isn't measured by human standards. Our intelligence isn't measured by human standards. And we know that when we pursue that, when we make intelligence our goal, when we make knowledge our goal, that we get puffed up, right? Knowledge puffs up. And that's not what we want. Instead, we want the humility that comes through love and through understanding that to God be all wisdom and glory. Am I gifted enough? I think oftentimes we'll question our gifting in the church. Um, another insecurity <laughs> I could share with you guys, I like to sit in the front row um, at church and it's not because I'm like the really good kid, right? It's not because I'm teacher's pet. It's because I like to sing during worship, but I don't want any of you to hear it. <laughs> and so I go in the front row to make sure I'm not singing to the back of someone's head because I am totally insecure about my own voice. And maybe you guys, so any of you maybe who don't sing during worship, try the front row. It's great. <laughs> but I love how we'll ask ourselves, well, I don't know if I'm gifted enough. And God will say, I gave you this gift and this gift and this gift. These are beautiful, wonderful gifts. And we'll say, yeah, but I wanted to be uh, such and such, right? And so I love what it says in God's word. It says that some parts in the body that seem the weakest are the absolute most important. Some parts of the body that seem the weakest are the most important, right? And of course, God is talking not about just the human body, but he's talking about the body of Christ, that there are parts of the body of Christ that are not glorious jobs. But without them, our churches would be in massive, massive trouble. I mean, there are jobs that you, you just absolutely take for granted that maybe you don't even think of as spiritual gifts, but even just being a good mom or a good dad in our culture is not glorified. 
Like being a full-time mom or heaven forbid a full-time dad. I've got a buddy who his wife goes to work and he stays home and, and takes care of the kids. And oh boy, does he get a lot of flack for that culturally. But that is an awesome, amazing calling that God has equipped him for. And that is super, super important. And so we need to remember what Jesus said, that I think we're going to be really surprised when we get to heaven about who has the best mansions or who has the best you know, crowns or who has the best glory. That Jesus says, but many who are the greatest now will be least important then. Not less important, least important. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Am I holy enough? You guys are going to go through Romans and you're going to learn as you go through Romans, as you started this beautiful journey, that you are not holy enough except through Christ in which you're more than holy enough, right? That in and of ourselves, and you guys know this, but in and of ourselves, we have sinned, we've messed up, we couldn't keep God's perfect standards, um, but God in his, in his beautiful grace has sent Jesus Christ to be our sacrifice for our sins, right? And so we're I don't want to give you guys spoilers as you go through Romans, but there's some awesome promises in Romans that, that equip us for that. And then just the last one. Oh, sorry, second to last one. Am I safe enough? Just thinking about, especially in terms of COVID, I think that all of us, especially early on, maybe less so now, but not just COVID, but all the threats that are just out there right now, like culturally, uh, we're coming to a place where it's harder and harder to coexist peacefully with our society. Um, I think more than any other time in my life, I question my own personal safety in my society and the, the value that society puts on keeping me safe. So I'm not going to go into huge detail on that, but you need to know that eternally you are absolutely safe in God's hands, that he protects you in his own hands. He says, Jesus says in John, and says, for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them out of my hand, right? Out of my father's hand. And then in Romans, again, just knowing that sovereignty of God, that everything that happens to us, everything that happens to us is under the sovereignty of God and that he works all of it for our good as we love him and as, as we're called according to his purposes. And then the last one, I've shared some insecurities with you guys a little bit on these, but um, I think the question that we ask all of ourselves is, am I good enough? Not just am I holy enough, but am I good enough? Um, the picture that you see up there, some of you may, may recognize, that's uh, eight-year-old David. Um, I've shared my, my testimony with a couple of you, but I think it's worth repeating uh, because it glorifies God in that when I was a young man, um, I kind of, I hated people. Um, people treated me a certain way because of the way that I looked with my glasses. And I think that some people can relate to that. It's funny, as you look at it now, like I can look at that objectively and say, oh, what a cute kid. But back, back in that time, it was not cute. And kids can be really, really, really mean. And when enough people treat you like a monster, it's hard not to internalize that and to think of yourself as a monster. I remember dealing with that for, for years and years and years and just being really, really, really introverted and not wanting to be around people at all because of the way they treated me and even developing a hatred for people. Like, I didn't want to meet new people. I didn't want to, I mean, God used it all. Like, I learned a lot about computers <laughs> at that time, but, um, but not even wanting to be around society because society treated me so so harshly. And I remember going to my first appointment to try out these new contact lenses because long story short, I was born with cataracts, which is a lens that develops over your eye. Uh, when I was three months old, the doctors tried to remove that lens uh, before lasers. 
um, and they would use a scalpel. And so they tried to remove it with the scalpel and shattered the pupil in this eye and then left this eye without a lens um, because that's what they were trying to do. <laughs> and so I grew up all, pretty much my whole life without lenses in my eyes. And so I had to have those ginormous glasses to be able to, for this eye that I can see out of, uh, to be able to get things right side up and get things to where I could kind of start to see them. And it took a long time before they could put that into contact lenses um, and they couldn't put it into the soft contact lenses, but maybe you guys have heard of the hard contact lenses. Does anyone know what those are made of? They're called rigid gas permeable contacts and they're actually made of glass. It's a super, super fancy glass. And the doctor, I remember when I went to this appointment, the doctor was telling me that this lens is designed to reshape my eye. And what that means, like looking back at it, what that means is this lens has a razor sharp edge that will literally cut your eye to fit the shape of this lens when you put it in. I didn't understand any of that. And so I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm at this table and there's like this mirror thing and there's like this, this little, you guys, have, if you've seen contacts, you got these saline solution pools, right? And so I've got the contact in there and I've got it on my finger and I've got the saline solution. And they're like, okay, now all you have to do is put your finger in your eye. And I'm like, what, what? <laughs> You're not supposed to put your finger in your eye. And so I'm trying to psych myself out to put this thing in my eye, right? I finally get it in there. And it is literally to this day, I remember, it is just one of the most painful experiences I can remember in my entire life. I mean, I've got eye goo just leaking down my face because my eye feels like I've got a, an eyelash on steroids in my eye. It's bad. It's literally reshaping my eye. And uh, I remember just thrashing around and thrashing around and looking at, and, and um, as I started to crack my vision open just a little bit, um, I was amazed, number one, that I could see, but I was amazed by what was on the table in front of me. I, I didn't understand why he would need a mirror to put in contact lenses because I can't see without my contact lenses. But in this mirror, I saw something that you probably take for granted every single day. I saw my own face for the first time in my life. Every time I looked in the mirror, all I could see was that. I could only see my face through the literal lenses of the thing that I hated the most. And in that moment, Gosh, in that moment, God just spoke to me in such a beautiful, powerful way. He told me, this is who I created you to be. This is why I, I didn't mess up when I made you. And I think that there's people in this room that need to know that God did not make a mistake when he made you. But that he will use everything whether the world calls it good or bad, that you inherited in this human fleshly body, but that he will use everything for your good. Everything. There is not an insecurity that you have that God cannot transform. There is not a handicap that you've been born with that God cannot transform. There is not an experience that you've been through that God cannot transform. But by the power of my God, who has all grace and all power and all wisdom, he can take what the world would call evil and horrible and transform it into something you will call beautiful. Because that's my God. And that's what he wants to do in each one of us. He says in, in Romans 12, it says, I beg you, I beseech you, brethren, in view of God's mercies, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. And that's what it requires, guys. We have to come to the table acknowledging that I cannot do it myself, but that I need God to transform my hurts and my handicaps and my insecurities and my vulnerabilities for His glory. And so I'm going to leave you with this. For we speak as messengers approved by God 
to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God and not people, because He alone examines the motives of our hearts. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.